1: your host Ari Barbalat, and I'm honored today to be in dialogue with my guest, Dr. Tessa Murphy. She is an assistant professor of history at Syracuse University. We will be discussing her new book, The Creole Archipelago, Race and Borders in the Colonial Caribbean, published in Philadelphia by University of Pennsylvania Press 2021. Tessa, it's an honor and a privilege to be talking with you today.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Thank you. Uh, To begin, please tell us about yourself where did you grow up? What did you study?
0: Uh, So I grew up in London, Ontario, uh, which is just across the border from Syracuse in Canada. And I did my undergraduate at the University of Toronto where I was a history major and I double minored in French and anthropology. And at the University of Toronto being such a big place, even when you're majoring in a subject, um, you don't necessarily specialize. Your, Your courses can remain quite broad. And it actually wasn't until my last year of undergraduate work that I took a joint graduate undergraduate seminar on the topic of gender and emancipation um, with Dr. Melanie Newton, who is a historian of the Caribbean and was at the time the director of Caribbean studies at the University of Toronto. And that class just really opened my eyes to Caribbean history in general. We we read um, C.L.R. James, The Black Jacobins, but we also read Laurent Dubois, A Colony of Citizens. We read pieces from Pamela Scully and Diana Payton's Gender and Slave Emancipation in the Atlantic World. And I became really interested in how some of the things that most interested me about history in general, so processes of encounter and exchange and the rise of new societies, really played out in microcosm in the Caribbean, which was a region that to be totally honest, I hadn't thought that much about before, but which I quickly became fascinated by. So I was very fortunate that uh, Dr. Newton was really generous with her time and we stayed in touch and we met up several times after I graduated and she helped me to kind of hone my interests and ultimately to apply to graduate school uh, at the University of Chicago where I had the great honor of studying um, with my advisor, Dr. Julie Seville, who's a historian of comparative slavery and emancipation, but also taking classes with scholars of the French Atlantic like Paul Cheney, um, scholars of, um, again, slavery and emancipation like Dr. Thomas Holt, um, and really kind of, and many Latin Amer- professors of Latin American history um, like Dane Borges, who was also on my committee, um, that allowed me to develop this very Caribbean centered project.
1: Wonderful. What a journey. What inspired you to write this book? Is there a particular message that you wish for your readers, both lay readers and scholarly readers to learn from it?
0: Yeah, this book really began to take shape after my first year of graduate school at the university of Chicago. Um, My very first time going into an archive, I went to Martinique in the summer after uh, my first year. And my question in entering into that archive was to see whether and how the 1685 Code Noir, which is this royal decree that governed um, the treatment of enslaved and free people of African descent in France's Caribbean colonies, how that legal code affected free people of color in their day-to-day lives in this particular colony. And so I started combing through the oldest surviving Catholic parish registers for Martinique, and these are for Les Instamets, which is this little community in the southwest, and they go back till about the 1670s. And as I traced, use these parish registers to trace these interracial families over the course of generations, looking at who they married, who they chose as godparents, um, whether their names changed. I noticed that some of these families just disappeared. uh, And I knew that they hadn't died because there would be a burial record, but they just weren't showing up in the records, which made no sense in a society where Catholicism Um, really structured people's everyday lives. And finally, some of them started to reappear. They would come back to act as witnesses to marriages or to be godparents. And the priest in Martinique would note, oh, this person lives in St. Lucia or this person lives in St. Vincent. And initially I thought, oh, I didn't realize St. Lucia and St. Vincent were French colonies. Um, When you think about the French Caribbean, you think about Martinique, Guadeloupe, Saint-Domingue, which of course becomes Haiti, um, but not these other islands. And as it turns out, they actually weren't French colonies, but they were increasingly inhabited by French-speaking Catholic people, as well as indigenous and enslaved people. And so that early realization in my graduate career kind of sent me down the rabbit hole of what were people doing in these places? What kind of society were they forging? How did Imperial authorities feel about this? And those are the questions that ultimately really animated my book. Um, My goals for the book are pretty simple. Um, These are islands and people that are often left out of mainstream histories of this era. But as I hope I show, they really matter. The issues that are being worked out in these places at this time, what does sovereignty look like? who can belong to the society? Um, What will be the economic basis of these societies? How will they fit into broader transatlantic systems? These are huge questions being worked out in fairly small places. And because of that, we get this glimpse of how ordinary people engaged with and helped shape these broader processes. And that's the story that I'd like both scholars and people who may live in or have a connection to these islands in the present day to take away from
1: this book. In light of the time that you spent in such islands doing research, what kinds of relationships and experiences can you share with us about your time there while doing your your research for this project?
0: Yeah, I can certainly say um, these are great places to do research. I have no complaints. Yeah, I can um, imagine. Yeah. Uh, the majority of my research did take place in um, colonial archives, so in the places where these records ended up. And so that is um, the National Archives of the United Kingdom in Kew, just outside of London, and then also France's Archive National de Trumet, which is in Aix-en-Provence. So I had quite lengthy research stints there. And then my time in the Caribbean was generally to kind of supplement what I had found in those places and try and figure out, okay, what are the records that were exclusively kept in the Caribbean? And so what that ended up looking like for me was, I did two research trips to Dominica, three to Martinique, because Martinique was kind of the center of this um, society. And then one each to St. Lucia and to Grenada. And unfortunately, to my great regret, I didn't get to go to um, St. Vincent or to Tobago in part because the Tobago archives are in Trinidad. So okay. would have been <laughs> in the wrong spot. Um, but in general, I thought it was invaluable to do research in those places, um, in part just to see them. Uh, I think the geography that, uh, of the region is so important to understanding the interconnections that people were able to forge across islands and ultimately across empires. And I don't think I would have appreciated that had I not been able to go you know, to Pigeon Island in St. Lucia and clearly see Martinique right across the water or to take a ferry that goes every day from St. Lucia to Martinique and on to Dominica, and from there on to Guadeloupe, and think about how people engage in those um, maritime crossings in the colonial era and in the present day. So, on a very basic level, doing research in these places was fun and wonderful, um, but it was also great to have a clearer sense of how people live in this space. And then of course, despite the huge challenges of material preservation that are faced by archivists and historians um, in islands that don't necessarily have the resources to invest in like climate controlled spaces um, in places where archival material might have been destroyed by hurricanes um, or by warfare in the colonial period, you do find some archival materials there that just didn't get sent to the metropole. So these early parish registers for um, Les that I was talking about, or in Dominica during the, um, it was occupied by the French during the American revolution. And so there were all these um, colonial assembly proceedings that never actually made it across the ocean. So there were some gems that you wouldn't get in the metropolitan archives, but I also think it's really invaluable where possible for historians of the Caribbean to actually go and see these places and get a a clearer sense of what life is like and was like in these islands.
1: What made you choose the title, The Creole Archipelago? What's the significance of that specific title and that specific choice of words?
0: Thank you for that question, because I, I did get a fair amount of pushback or kind of back and forth on the title. Uh, especially because neither word, Creole or archipelago, is necessarily easy to say. You said them perfectly, but there's different pronunciations of um, archipelago. But those two concepts, um, creolization and the archipelagic nature of the Lesser Antilles are really central to the story that I'm trying to tell. I think that Um, Living in an archipelago, a place where an individual can see other islands and therefore kind of glimpse or visualize other possibilities as they go about their day-to-day lives, really shapes the shared culture that emerges across these islands. And as a result, people who are born in and spend their lives in this region, Creole people, Uh, forged shared languages and shared practices and shared beliefs and understandings that might be at odds with those um, that were held or introduced by non-Creole people, people coming in from the metropole. So those two concepts, Creolization and the archipelagic nature of the space, really work in tandem. The archipelago, the geography, forges the shared Creole society And in the end, I felt like this mutually reinforcing relationship was so essential to how I understand the history of the region that it really had to be highlighted in the
1: title. Wow. So the subtitle of your book is Race and Borders in the Colonial Caribbean. How does your book advance our understanding of the nature and character of borders?
0: Yeah, thank you for that question, because again, it's one that I grappled with a lot, I think that we usually conceive of borders as terrestrial. Um, So places that are demarcated between competing uh, powers on land. And we have this sort of misunderstanding of islands as naturally bounded places that are therefore contained um, and that people have to stay in those islands. But when you look at a place like the Lesser Antilles where these islands are maybe 20, 25 miles apart, instead of having clear boundaries, islands actually have these multiple points of entry and exit that are just impossible to police. If you have a small bay, that becomes kind of a borderland because you can't necessarily control who's coming and going through that place, what goods, what ideas, um, what, what potentially destabilizing forces are crossing that border. So I was really interested in kind of extending the concept of borderlands that I think in American history is most often associated with places like the US Southwest and kind of extending that into a maritime space. And there I follow, um, other people who are thinking about maritime borderland worlds, like um, Josh Reed does this it, with the sea is my country, um, looking at the Pacific Northwest. Um, and Drew Lipman does this um, in the Northeast, looking at the saltwater frontier, um, but kind of pushing us to think about borderlands, not simply as terrestrial, but also potentially as um, maritime or aqueous spaces.
1: How does your book advance our understanding of the Black Atlantic?
0: Yeah. um, So I hope in many different ways. Um, it, It perhaps seems a bit facile to say, but I think that the early colonial Caribbean and the free colonial Caribbean in general were a lot blacker than we often assume, and that people of African descent did a great deal to shape the society and economy and culture and politics of uh, the early colonial Caribbean. This really came out of the initial work I did with those Martinican parish registers, where I would notice that in a marriage or baptismal document, most people were being given the honorific of Sieur, so like Mr. or Madame, like Mrs., except for maybe one woman who would just be called Marie Magdalene or something. And this kind of oversight seems small, but to deny that honorific is a really marked lack of respect on the part of the person making the record. So I would kind of flag these families and I would follow them across multiple archival documents. And ultimately what almost always happened Was that some priest or some other official would note in passing that actually the woman in question or her descendants uh, were black or were of mixed race so they were sort of passing on paper they weren't being explicitly identified in most documents as being um, of African ancestry Um, but in their communities their their ancestry would have been known and as I show in the book the horizons for free people of color begin to narrow after the Seven Years War. So after 1763, people who had been kind of unmarked on paper for generations are now being marked as Mestif or Mamluk, like these invented terms that refer to a small degree of African ancestry. And so we know from the great work done on the Black Atlantic that economic and social power of free people of color narrowed throughout the Atlantic world in the latter half of the 18th century. So I think John Garrigus shows this really powerfully in before Haiti, Sue Peabody and Jennifer Palmer trace this in their respective works on France in this era. But I was really struck that in the lesser Antilles, people of mixed race respond to this narrowing by insisting that they have a continued right to exercise influence in colonial society. So for example, in the book, we have this great petition from self-identified people of color in Dominica, where they write to the King of England, and they say, I'm only slightly paraphrasing here, we expect to benefit in in common with our fellow subjects and without any discriminating regard to complexion. Of the common blessings to which we are entitled. So they use the language of subjecthood and of their entitlement to argue against any restriction of the political and economic and social rights that they've been exercising for generations. And I think we see this insistence that being of African descent should not prevent one from participating in colonial politics or in slaveholding also expressed in more violent responses to colonial rule um, like Fédon's Rebellion.
1: In your perspective, why have the islands of the Eastern Caribbean been ignored in the study of imperialism in North America? How and why did this blind spot come to be?
0: Well, the problem I think is at least twofold, um, archival and historiographic. At the level of the archive, these islands mostly remained uncolonized by European powers until the end of the years, end of the Seven Years War in 1763. And then they repeatedly change hands um, because of wars like the American War of Independence, the French Revolution, the Napoleonic Wars. And so that means if you want to know about places that we think of as part of the British West Indies like Grenada or St. Lucia, you actually need to be looking in French colonial archives for the earlier period. Uh, At an archival level, there's also the challenge of material preservation. So while officials in the islands were supposed to send copies of everything back to Europe, in practice, a lot got lost crossing the Atlantic. Um, As I mentioned before, documents that are held in the islands themselves might have been lost to warfare or to hurricanes or just a kind of decomposition because of the climate. And at the level of historiography, I think there's a tendency to examine the Caribbean primarily as a place of sugar plantations. Um, Of course, we have wonderful work that looks beyond the plantation like Marissa Fuentes's Dispossessed Lives on, on Barbados or and Perotin du work on urban Guadeloupe. But in general, the field is driven by an interest in explaining the rise of plantations and plantation slavery. And more and more, we're seeing work that highlights the colonial Caribbean as a much more diverse space. So uh, very recently, I can think of Juan José Ponce Vasquez's Islands and Empire about smuggling in early colonial Santo Domingo or Aaron Woodruff Stone's Captives of Conquest, which provides us with a really vivid portrait of the indigenous Caribbean. So I see myself as contributing to a growing body of scholarship that seeks to address this gap or this oversight by broadening our understandings of the colonial Caribbean and its connections um, to mainland North America.
1: One contribution of your book is to integrate the history of the Eastern Caribbean with the history of the Seven Years' War. Can you explain how they are interconnected?
0: Sure. Um, I think a lot of the historiography of the Seven Years War focuses particularly on the French and Indian War. So basically the the North American mainland theater of this conflict talks about um, wiping France from the map and redrawing settler indigenous borders. But I think something quite similar happens in the Lesser Antilles as a result of this conflict. So the former French colony of Grenada and the former neutral or Kalinago Islands of St. Vincent, Dominica and Tobago become British colonies and St. Lucia becomes French. So we have this marginalization of indigenous people and their relegation to much smaller territories. And of course the conflicts that result from this relegation. And we have France's power diminishing and Great Britain exerting more control over its colonial subjects. In both cases, this is much like what we see in Northeastern North America in the lead up to the American Revolution. So it's certainly not exactly the same, but I think parallel processes are happening in mainland North America and in the Caribbean that I think merit examination um, as a means of kind of knitting these disparate historiographies Of the Seven Years' War together.
1: Another contribution of your book is integrating the Eastern Caribbean with the history of the American and French revolutions. Can you explain how they are interconnected?
0: Yes. Um, I think it's only natural that scholarship on the American Revolution focuses primarily on the colonies that became the United States. But I think that if we approach British North America, in terms of its geography at the time of the conflict, we wouldn't necessarily assume that like Georgia would join with New York to forge a new nation. Like I think we need to interrogate the economic and demographic and political similarities between places that we come to think of as really disparate and distinct. There are a small number of books that look at the Caribbean during the era of the American Revolution. So um, Selwyn Carrington's The British West Indies During the American Revolution, Andrew Jackson, O'Shaughnessy's Prize Winning and Empire Divided, and more recently, uh, Trevor Bernard's Jamaica and the Age of Revolution. But these books are primarily, but not exclusively, focused on the motivations of planters. And they tend to look at large colonies like Jamaica, My book is much more interested in what moments of revolution felt like to ordinary people in the Caribbean. So how did indigenous Kalanagos, enslaved people, free people of color and small planters respond as American privateers start swarming in in their waters and landing on the shores of their colonies? Uh, What did independence and revolution mean to them? By focusing on these questions, I think I link up with a a growing body of work about how ordinary people in mainland North America made sense of, responded to, and contributed to the revolution. So Gary Nash, but more recently, um, Kathleen Duval. As far as the French Revolution, uh, of course, we've got excellent works on the French Revolution in the Lesser Antilles, most notably um, Laurent Dubois' A Colony of Citizens, which looks at Guadeloupe. But I sometimes feel like explanations for a single colony like Guadeloupe, are kind of assumed to hold true throughout the region. And by looking at what happened in individual islands, in my case, specifically Grenada and St. Vincent, I suggest that things were a bit more complicated and and that the islands deserve to be examined on their own terms. By tracing this long history of resistance to British colonial rule by indigenous Kalanagos and free people of color and French Catholics, I ask us to consider the French Revolution as a galvanizing event, uh, an event that created opportunities for people to rebel, but not the reason and not the first time that people took up arms against the British colonial regime in the region.
1: What can you share with us about Kalanago culture to, to our listeners who might not be familiar, can you teach us some things about Kalinago beliefs, religion, mythology, legends, customs, etc.
0: Sure. Um, I am happy to tell you as much as I can, but I will start with the caveat that this topic remains underexplored and it would make a great research project for mm-hmm. any graduate student. Um, Peter Hume in his books, Wild Majesty and Colonial Encounters, maybe even Remnants of Conquest, which is a slightly later period. He gives us perhaps the best insight into um, the the world of the Kalinagos. And I also relied a lot on a bilingual French, Carib or Kalinago language dictionary from the 1650s for kind of glimpses um, of Kalinago society through ethnography, but basically the Kalinagos are a product of a profoundly disrupted and reordered world that was created as a result of European incursion in the Caribbean. Some historians um, and anthropologists think of them as kind of refugees from the greater Antilles. Many say that there are new people who kind of came into being um, as a result of the enslavement and the mass population movement of indigenous people Throughout the Circum Caribbean after European arrival. Others say that they're direct descendants of indigenous people who migrated out from the Arinoco Basin and settled um, in the Western Antilles in like 11 to 1300. So even their origins and what to call them is very disputed. Some people prefer the term Carib. I use Kalinago because it is the term used by people who identify as indigenous to the region in the present day. By the time that the book focuses on, the Kalinagos are a maritime oriented people who lived in and across the islands of the Lesser Antilles. Um, They lived in small villages, which they called Calbés, although Calbés seems to be a borrowing from um, a South American term. They engaged in some horticulture, growing crops like um, cassava, um, a lot of fishing, and also some small game hunting. They would hunt manatees. Um, They surfed, which I just love, or they at least body surfed in rivers. Um, They held animist beliefs. So different objects held different spirits and those spirits could be good or bad and those spirits needed to be honored. Uh, Kalinago oral history holds that a man named Kalinago left his homeland in a Kana'oa or a canoe. So we actually derive the word canoe from the uh-huh. Kalinago language. And that he traveled for many days until he found a new island called Watikubiri or Dominica to call home. Um, but that Kalinagos were descended from and, and linked to indigenous people on in the South American mainland. There's actually quite decent archeological evidence to support this connection. Today, there's a Kalinago reservation in the island of Dominica. This is the only indigenous reservation in the Caribbean. And the Garifuna people of Central America, uh, pri- primarily Belize, also trace their ancestry to the Kalinagos. So this is still very much a living group of indigenous people whose history and whose existence like that of many indigenous peoples throughout the Americas often remains largely unknown or even erased, um, but which is central to understanding the history of this region.
1: Can you comment on the consequences of deforestation in the islands you study? Sure.
0: Yeah. Um, So here I would say like the go-to is certainly uh, Richard Grove's Green Imperialism, where he has a whole chapter um, about... um, about St. Vincent. And then also Max Adelson talks about um, deforestation and settlement in his book, The New Map of Empire. But very briefly, I'd note that um, planters and officials had really learned by the time they got control of the Seated Islands in the 1760s, that deforestation was bad. Um, They'd seen that deforestation led to soil erosion in places like Barbados. They didn't want it to happen in these these new colonies that were actually quite heavily forested. So from the start, we see an explicit effort by officials in the ceded Islands to keep um, a certain amount of standing rainforest in each island for what they called the preservation of the rains. They kind of linked um, the presence of trees to the amount of rainfall in the islands. And of course, this also meant that people who were trying to escape from plantations had more places to hang, to hide out. So it's kind of a double-edged sword. There's an ecological intervention that also has um, consequences for Marinage. But we do see in the Ceded Islands, some of the first explicit attempts to prevent deforestation um, for environmental and also for plantation productivity reasons.
1: What contribution does your book make to our understanding of the plantation system?
0: Um, I hope a number of different things. So one is simply that plantations certainly developed um, in various parts of the Caribbean without direct intervention. The earliest plantations that are established in these islands date to the early 18th century, so decades before they become formal colonies of Great Britain or of France. And so what we see here are individual planters extending the plantation system beyond the borders of colonial rule and kind of replicating elements of that system in new lands. So the first intervention being it's not necessarily a top-down and controlled kind of development. It's something that can be Uh, emulated by individuals in a a wide variety of places. And then I think the other thing that we see is kind of a bridging between what historians think of as the first and second slaveries. Um, The second slavery to my knowledge is a term pioneered by Dale Tomich and kind of looks at the rationalization and the mechanization of plantation production after the abolition of slavery in some parts of the Americas. So after the Haitian revolution um, with the disappearance of Sandomang as the leading sugar producer, we start to see new sugar frontiers um, in places like the Spanish Caribbean or um, in parts of Brazil. But I think that some of the rationalization and the mechanization that we usually associate with the second slavery, also characterizes what's happening in the Ceded Islands in the middle to late 18th century. So before we actually see the disappearance of slavery anywhere, colonial officials are trying to control the size of plantations to prevent the engrossment of huge plots of land and kind of the migration of um, white people who might stay and contribute to the militia we see um, attempts to kind of organize and discipline enslaved labor that really kind of predict some of these enlightenment era reforms um, that we'll see slightly later in the 18th century.
1: Your book tells the story of the seeded islands, Dominica, Grenada, St. Vincent and Tobago. To what degree should we contemplate the history of these islands as sharing a common collected fate? To what degree did they suffer in singular and unique ways? In other, way, in other words, what was Dominica's experience in any ways different from Grenada's? Or to what degree was Tobago's experience different from St. Vincent's? Uh, what aspects of the history you narrate were common to all of the ceded islands? And what aspects were particular to specific islands?
0: Yeah, the ceded islands, share a lot of similarities in the way that they were viewed and administered by the British. So even the name, the Ceded Islands, or they're sometimes called the Southern Caribbean islands, groups them together as one space. Um, And when they became British colonies after the Seven Years War, they were originally administered as a single colony. So it was headquartered in Grenada. And what was decided for Grenada would also apply in Tobago and St. Vincent and even as far away as Dominica. So the initial rules about settlement and trade and colonial representation and law held true across the shared administrative space. But the islands really differ in terms of their geography, their topography, their populations. And so this in turn very quickly begins to shape um, the the more disparate political um, and economic histories of each island. So in St. Vincent, where you've got a relatively large and powerful population that identifies as indigenous, you see local planters saying, hey, we need a stronger military presence here to protect us from these so-called Caribs. And this ultimately sparks warfare in the island. Um, In Dominica, which is Incredibly mountainous. Uh, you see differences in the kinds of plantations that can be created. So coffee grows well, um, but it's hard to create large su- sugar plantations. And this in turn affects the economy as well as the structure of the plantations and the resultant population in the islands, right? The enslaved population on each plantation is going to be smaller on coffee plantations than on sugar plantations. In Tobago, which is harder to access, we see fewer permanent free settlers. Uh, This in turn leads to larger plantations and a much larger enslaved majority than we see in other islands. So in short, the ceded Islands are are viewed and administered as a group by colonial officials. And therefore I think it's kind of fruitful to examine them as a group, but these local factors have really important um, effects that need to be taken into account.
1: What makes the history of Dominica, Grenada, St. Vincent, and Tobago different vis-a-vis other islands in the British West Indies? And how is the history of these islands in particular unique relative to the history of other islands in the Spanish, Dutch, and French empires in the region during this time?
0: Well, I think in relation to other islands in the British West Indies, they're quite different. And I think that that helps explain your earlier question about why they might be overlooked sometimes. Um, They don't become British West Indian colonies until very late. So Leeward Islands like Antigua and St. Kitts and Nevis and and as well as Barbados, which is not a Leeward Island, they all get settled in the 1620s. The seated islands don't get settled until by the British, don't become British colonies until the 1760s. So almost a century and a half later. And as I show in the book, this is not because of imperial disinterest. It's because of the presence of powerful indigenous people who prevent Europeans from settling their lands. We see some Euro indigenous warfare in the early colonial Leeward Islands But Barbados does not appear from archeological evidence to have been inhabited by indigenous people at the time of English arrival. So that really shapes what early colonists can do. In Barbados, they're like unimpeded in their early settlement. The island's geographies also shape what's possible to an extent. So Dominica and Grenada and St. Vincent, they're all part of the same volcanic chain. And so, as I mentioned, what that means is if you're at the end of one island, you can see the next one. Some of the Leeward islands are also really close together. And so there too, you can see kind of the forging of shared space as people move between islands, but Barbados is really off on its own. And so again, that gives English settlers kind of the ability to create a little garrison in the island and shut themselves off from rival indigenous and European powers. And so ultimately I think what happens is that Barbados is anomalous in a lot of ways. But because it's really one of the first English colonies, one of the most powerful and wealthiest English colonies, one of the best documented English colonies, we sometimes think of Barbados as, like, representative of the British West Indies and expect other colonies to mirror it in a way that they really don't. Um, As to the second part of your question, as far as the Spanish and Dutch and French empires, I, I see some similarities with Dutch colonies in part because of the way that islands like Dominica and Grenada and St. Vincent are situated at maritime crossroads. So you see a lot of inter, inter-imperial trade in Dutch colonies like St. Eustatius. Um, and in a similar way, you see indigenous people and the subjects of various European nations engaging in a lot of trade in, let's say, Dominica that place that officials find really difficult to police. I think the greatest overlap is perhaps with French islands because many of the Europeans who go and settle in uh, these islands like Saint Vincent and Dominica, they're French. So they're bringing Catholicism, they're bringing the French language, they're bringing elements of their culture. They're kind of spreading French influence beyond the formal boundaries of French rule. when the book was already out, somebody suggested to me, like, well, isn't that what the French do? Isn't that how French colonization works? Uh, They send a few French people to live in indigenous spaces, and then they say, oh, that's that's France now, right? So Richard White's um, middle ground being an example there. And I thought that was a really provocative way of looking at this, and also a potentially useful way of kind of further integrating the history of the Lesser Antilles into the history of the mainland Americas.
1: You alluded to Barbados uh, just now, and if you don't mind, I'd be curious to ask you to perhaps elaborate. Like, in what ways was the experience of Barbados similar or different to the Ceded Islands, in as much as both were part of the British imperial system? Um, what makes Barbados similar to the for- to the islands you examine, and what makes it different?
0: I would say that my book is in some tiny way, a response to Barbados standing in for small islands throughout the Caribbean in general. Um, yeah. Barbadian history is really interesting. It's really important. But as I mentioned, for in a lot of ways, it's really weird, it's really anomalous. Um, Barbados appears to be one of the only islands in the Caribbean that was not home to a permanent in permanent indigenous population at the time of European arrival. This shapes what Europeans are able to do, but I think it also contributes to indigenous erasure in the Caribbean and an assumption like, oh, well, there weren't indigenous people in Barbados, so there weren't indigenous people anywhere. Um, That's patently untrue. Uh, Barbados is also kind of on its own out in the Atlantic, like it's about 110 miles east of the Lesser Antillean chain. So in that respect, it's almost more akin to maybe like Bermuda than it is to Grenada. This insulates it from attack. If a rival Navy navy is approaching, they could see it and they could prepare. Um, It also means that Barbados is a bit more accessible for people sailing from the Eastern Atlantic. So sailing from Europe and and West Africa. So it makes it a really um, important slave trading port. In terms of similarities, in some ways, the Ceded Islands are like Barbados 2.0. They're similar in size. They're fairly similar in climate. Like Barbados is a limestone rather than a volcanic island, and it is a bit drier. Um, But there are some similarities. and, And British officials in the 18th century are thinking, let's do what we did with Barbados, but let's do it better. We've got a chance to redo the plantation system with 150 years of experience under our belt. So they try to develop sugar plantations. They try to control the size and the treatment of the free and enslaved populations. They try to avoid problems they saw in Barbados like um, plantar absenteeism, the engrossment of large estates, deforestation, soil erosion. And in that way, both Barbados and the Ceded Islands end up as British plantation colonies built on the exploitation of enslaved labor to the profit of a planter elite, which I think is probably the greatest similarity kind of across the British West Indies.
1: Another island that gets some significant attention in your book is St. Lucia. Mm -hmm. Um, One particularly noteworthy passage on St. Lucia that struck me was on page 146, where you say that you say the increase, you write that the increase in both inter-island and transatlantic human trafficking profoundly altered the demography of the Eastern Caribbean, which in turn shaped the place of enslaved people in plantation society. With, res- with respect to St. Lucia in particular, uh, you then go on to note, this absence of documentation inadvertently shed- sheds light on the nature of captives. Involuntary voyages, rather than being trafficked as human commodities who sail in other ports, was recorded in shipping, manifests, and merchants' logs. Thousands of enslaved peoples were forcibly relocated as part of households. Individuals and families who moved between islands compelled countless enslaved people to accompany them on their inter-imperial voyages, separating them from friends and kin in Grenada, St. Vincent, Dominica, or Martinique, and thrusting them into unfamiliar lands. The the absence that you refer to re- is is in respect to the undocumented men, women, and children that were taken to St. Lucia, where you write, in St. Lucia, the enslaved population grew by almost 9,000 individuals in the decade after the Seven Years' War, growing from 5,069 people in 1764 to 13,000 982 people by 1773. According to the slave voyages database, a single ship, the Sisters, trafficked 248 captives from Benin to Grenada and onto St. Lucia during this period, while a total of 300 captives arrived in St. Lucia aboard 10 small vessels sailing from neighboring islands such as St. Vincent and Grenada. The origins, experiences, and forced journeys of the vast majority of people forced into slavery in St. Lucia in the decade after the Seven Years' War, some 8,300 men, women, and children remain undocumented. Can you elaborate on this passage? What role did the island of St. Lucia play in the history of this period? How did St. Lucia interact with the ceded islands?
0: Definitely. Um, there, there are a lot of things going on in that passage, um, as you note, but I think there there are a couple of things to note about St. Lucia with respect to the islands that become the British Seated Islands in the same period. So to a certain extent, St. Lucia is France's Seated Island. It becomes an official colony at the same time in 1763 at the end of um, the Seven Years War. Just like the Seated Islands, France wants to learn from its earlier experiences and it wants to develop this new colony as quickly and and as efficiently as possible. And so both for British officials in the Ceded Islands and French officials in St. Lucia, this means slavery and plantation production. And so we see across the Ceded Islands and in St. Lucia in this period, this massive increase in the enslaved population, um, the transformation by enslaved people of um, former agricultural lands, so like food producing lands or perhaps lands that were fallow, becoming sites of plantation production and export. Um, and we see also the, the suffering that that um, produces across the islands. The difference is that in the period that I study, St. Lucia is administered as a dependency of Martinique. So in the same way that the Ceded Islands started out being administered from Grenada and only later get their own governments, St. Lucia is administered from from Martinique and it doesn't really ever get its own government. So as a dependency, it's not as central as a site of development, as a site of experimentation as the British ceded Islands were. Um, And instead it becomes a really important site of regional development. And so this is where we see uh, small planters coming from St. Vincent, from Martinique, from Grenada, bringing enslaved people with them and trying to develop um, smaller plantations in St. Lucia. Rather than the kind of transatlantic investment that we see in the Ceded Islands, so they're very similar in terms of being sites of experimentation. They get Saint Lucia gets free ports in the same way that Dominica gets free ports, and I argue that there's kind of inter-imperial exchange and borrowing happening in their um, respective approaches to these islands. But it is different in that it never—it's not seen as the potential future jewel of the French Empire in the way that Grenada is initially embraced as, oh, this is going to be the new Barbados by the British.
1: In what ways does your book advance our understanding of marronage?
0: Uh, I think one of the biggest ways is with respect to geography. So whether implicitly or explicitly, marronage assumes particular spaces of escape for an enslaved people. So mountainous areas, forests, the great dismal swamp in an uh, in American context, US context. And I think my work shows that any space with a competing regime can also become a space of refuge. So people begin settling in islands that are recognized as indigenous territories, like St. Vincent, As soon as slavery begins in the surrounding islands, we have uh, planters and French colonial officials or colonial officials in French colonies like Martinique, but also English colonies like Barbados, complaining about um, enslaved people escaping to St. Vincent as early as the 17th century. And these communities, then these maroon communities persist long after the islands become European colonies after 1763. So I think that this, while this isn't a main focus of the book, um, inter-island and as a result, inter-imperial marinage is important. So building on the work of uh, Linda Rupert and I think Elena Schneider is working on this now, I show how the possibility of seeking the protection of a rival colonial regime, of going to another island that's also part of another empire creates kind of spaces of escape, even in places that are not in the mountains or that are not in the forest. They may even be urban spaces, but there's a possibility to kind of seek the protection of a rival crown.
1: Who was Joseph Chatoyer? What role did he play in the first Carib war? Can you describe his biography and his significance, and perhaps even address how he is remembered in contemporary Saint Vincent?
0: Sure. Uh, so Chateau is a is a fascinating character um, who's really central to popular memory um, in Saint Vincent, but also very importantly for the Garifuna people who are descended from um, the Saint Saint Vincent's Kalinago population. So we don't know a great deal about him and kind of his biography but we do know that he was a Kalinago um, or indigenous man in Saint Vincent. His Cal Bay or his village was on the windward coast so on the north uh eastern side of the island. I always have to do the map in my head um and it was called Grand Sable and he um, kind of led a community of Kalinagos there. In the First Carib War, uh, which took place in the early 1770s, he protects this land from the incursion of um, British surveyors who are trying to turn Kalinago lands into uh, settler lands and create sugar plantations there. So Chateaulieu leads um, indigenous forces in battle against the British troops who come to support these surveyors. And in 1773, they reach a kind of stalemate. Chateauer does sign this treaty um, that gives up several thousand acres of Kalinago land to British settlers. But in the years after 1773, British settlers really struggled to, to actually settle that land um, in no small part because Kalinagos like Chatelier will come and kind of attack any plantations that they attempt to establish. Um, and this comes to a head again during the French revolutionary era and during what comes to be called the second War, which breaks out in March of 1795. And there again, we see Calinago forces attack British settlers um, and, and officials. Unfortunately, Chateaubriand is killed in one of the earliest battles of the Second Carib War. Um, I think by March 1795, he he is dead. But he's kind of remembered as a martyr of the Calinago cause, as kind of the main leader of the Calinagos in their best documented period in the 18th century. And in the present day, he certainly is. Um, valorized in Saint Vincent and also among the Garifuna people of present-day Belize as, as a very important um, ancestor and anti-colonial leader.
1: Can you kindly outline the Second Carib War? For those who are unfamiliar with the conflict, can you speak about its origins and its consequences?
0: Definitely. Um, As the name suggests, there were two Carib Wars, Um, one was in the early 1770s, and then the second Carib War is from 1795 to 1797. Both of these wars emerge um, because of land disputes between Kalanagos and uh, British people. Um, And in both instances, colonagos rise up in arms against settlers and the British troops who were sent to um, support them. So the Second Carib War breaks out in March, 1795, at the same time as the French Revolution is sweeping the Caribbean, and very importantly, at the same time as another rebellion called Fédon's Rebellion is taking place in Grenada. Um, Chateauyer and his followers ally with French Republican troops. And together, these Kalinago and French forces take control of St. Vincent. And initially they're quite successful. They kind of get the small number of British troops in the island to barricade themselves in St. Vincent's capital, Kingstown. Um, they raise some plantations, right? They burn down some plantations in the island. Um, officials are certainly very worried about their the prospect of keeping hold of St. Vincent. But ultimately, The British get huge naval reinforcements in June 1796, and so the British force a French surrender first in June 1796, and then the Kalinagos begin to surrender as individual units um, in the ensuing months. Once the Kalinagos surrender, they were exiled to a grenadine island called Balisot, which is about nine miles south of St. Vincent. Uh, Balisot is very small. It's rocky. It lacks any source of fresh water. So the British were supposed to supply anything that the exiles needed during their period of exile, but we don't know what conditions actually looked like. Um, about 5,000 Kalinagos are held on this little island between July 1796 and March 1797. And during this period of forced exile, about half of them died of what a doctor who was supposed to be looking after them later described as quote, a malignant pestilential disease. We don't know necessarily what it was. And the survivors of this epidemic were carried on British warships to the island of Roatan, which is uh, now like a diving center off the coast of Belize um, at the time the colony of British Honduras. And their descendants became the Garifuna people who are a recognized minority community in Belize and Honduras and I think also in Guatemala in the present day. So the second Carib war kind of culminates centuries of indigenous resistance to colonization in St. Vincent, uh, ultimately ending in a forceful exile that holds um, understandably particular importance for Kalinago and, and Griefina, um descendants in the present day.
1: Can you also speak uh, in, in, in some modest detail about Fidon's rebellion named after Julien Fidon. For those who are unfamiliar, can you tell us about what occurred in this particular insurgency and tell us something about Julien Fédon?
0: Yes. Um, so in much the same way that Chateaubriand and his um, rebellion or revolution is kind of remembered as this key event for Vincent St. History, Vincentian history, um, Fédon is a big hero in Grenada. He's very, very well known to Grenadians. Um, but I, th- I think and I hope that my book offers a new understanding of him and his place within um, this, the world of the Lesser Antilles. I really think that Feron's family is quite emblematic of the Creole archipelago. They're a mixed race family uh, of middling means. They do okay until the latter half of the 18th century when the horizons really start to narrow As people of mixed race, um, they become limited in their ability to hold land. Any political participation that they formally exercised is no longer available to them. There's attacks on them as Catholics, right? Because the established religion is the Church of England. And I think that plays a really important role in in alienating and perhaps um, radicalizing a person like Julien Fedon who might otherwise have been part of the middling planter class and, and driving him to embrace revolution when the opportunity presented himself. So Fedon's usually thought to have been born as a f- to, to a free woman of color and a white man in Martinique and then um, immigrate or migrate to Grenada during like the American Revolution when the island was occupied by the French or shortly thereafter. I was actually, in the course of doing this research, sent a document by a Grenadian who lives in New York named Peter Redhead, who I shout out in the book, uh, who's not a historian, but is a Grenadian who was doing his family history and discovered the marriage record of Julien Ferrand's parents, Pierre and Brigitte. And the marriage record clearly shows that Julien Ferron's mother was enslaved and therefore that the children born to the couple during the period in which he was enslaved were also born into slavery. And that would include Julien Fadon. He was not born as a free person, though he became free. Um, And actually Plugite becomes free explicitly as a result of France's 1685 code noir, which said that if an enslaved person married a free free person, they would also become free. So the genesis of this family is very much in the French Atlantic world, and it's in Grenada. It's not in Martinique and a subsequent um, migration. It's very rooted in Grenada and Grenada's history. As far as the, the rebellion itself, the accounts that we have are incredibly biased. They're authored by English speaking Protestants who quite explicitly want to get British troops to come to their during their author during the rebellion, and they want British troops to come in and save them. So they just paint the worst picture possible. Um, but what we know from these accounts is that the rebellion breaks out in March of 1795 with a two pronged attack led by French speaking Catholic free men of color who launched attacks on two towns in Grenada. They take Grenada's governor, Ninian Home, they take him hostage. They ultimately end up executing him and dozens of other English planters and officials when their demands aren't met. Um, the rebels in Grenada receive really important reinforcements from French Republicans who are stationed in Guadeloupe. Excuse me, and much like um, the Second Carib War, Initially, they're quite successful. They hold the whole island except for the capital of St. George's. They destroy plantations. They rally probably 7,000 enslaved people to their cause. But as in St. Vincent, British naval reinforcements arrive in the summer of 1796, and they quite quickly put this rebellion down. Um, the rebels are tried by this thing called an active attainder, which basically means there is no trial they're found guilty. Many of them are summarily executed. They all have all of their property confiscated. If they don't get executed, they do get exiled. Any women with any connection to the rebellion are also exiled. And so um, suppressing this rebellion ultimately allows British planters and officials to exert a lot more control over what until that point had been a predominantly Catholic French-speaking colony populated by middling planters, many of them free people of color like Julien Ferrand. The British after 1797 further restrict the political participation of Catholics. They exile a lot of French planters so they confiscate their land and their enslaved people And this allows them to really consolidate economic and political control over Grenada um, beginning in the 19th century. Understood.
1: I'd also like to ask you about Sandy's uprising. Who was Sandy and why was this revolt significant? What was the relationship between this revolt and Tacky's revolt in Jamaica and situations unfolding previously in Barbados in 1675? in New York in 1712 and 1741 and in Antiqua in 1736.
0: Yes, I would love to be able to tell you many things about Sandy, but unfortunately he only becomes visible to us at this moment of rebellion. Um, And what I can tell you is that he's described by colonial um, officials as being Coromantia or from the Coromantian nation of of West Africa. Um, It struck me as significant that his revolt, which takes place in Tobago during the era of the American Revolution, happened so close to Tacky's revolt in Jamaica. Um, In his recent book on Tacky, Vincent Brown characterizes that revolt as part of a broader Atlantic slave war and contextualizes Takis' revolt within broader conflicts in West Africa and across the Atlantic. So whether Sandy was a veteran of these African conflicts or whether British officials were just aware of and scared of these conflicts, they do repeatedly refer to um, Sandy as Coromanti and evidence a huge fear of Coromanti's in the wake of his revol- of his revolt. Um, Sandy and his followers are publicly and quite brutally executed and planters in Tobago and in other ceded islands are quite clear that they don't want any enslaved people who are Coramante to be trafficked to their islands anymore. They start enumerating Coramante separately on censuses of the island. They refuse to purchase any enslaved people described as Coramante. So we see here how broader Atlantic events reverberate in this little island of Tobago. Wow,
1: fascinating. Who were the Verge families? Can you speak about their importance in light of the attention you devote to them?
0: Yeah, like, like the Fedons, I see the Verges as kind of representing broader trends within the Creolized kind of inter-island society that, that I described throughout the book. Um, so I use them because by some flukes, they're just really well documented as compared to other ordinary people. But I think that they could easily stand in for any number of families who lived um, in this region at this time. They originate in Les Ensemble, so that little Martian village where my research started and where this whole project took shape. Um, and they're one of those families where everybody is called Monsieur and Madame except for the matriarch. So it kind of flagged them and been like, what is happening here that she's not getting this mark of respect? Then they disappear. Then they reappear having moved from Martinique to St. Vincent, a Kalinago territory prior to 1763. And then after 1763, they move from St. Vincent to St. Lucia. So within these records, which are spread across the colonies and England and France in the present day, We've got the single interracial, multi-generational family moving between three islands and three different regimes. When they get to St. Lucia, it becomes really possible to see how these broader imperial changes affect their daily lives. They arrive in St. Lucia as white people in the records. There's no mention of their race in any of the early documents, but by the 1770s and 1780s, They're consistently identified as being people of mixed race, so we can see in their family story how the growth of the plantation economy really limits the possibilities for free people of color. We can see them respond to this, we can see them strategize marriage and godparentage in order to kind of forge networks that will protect their family assets and their reputations we can see they're changing economic fortunes. There's limits on the amount of land that free people of color can own. And so they, the sons have less um, economic influence than the fathers. So they're just one family that happens to be really well documented. But in this family, I think we can glimpse how ordinary free people navigated the huge changes that characterized the lesser Antilles in the period that the book covers. Um, As it becomes more difficult to be a mixed race family in Martinique, they move to the Kalanago territory of St. Vincent. When St. Vincent becomes a British colony, they move to the French colony of St. Lucia. In St. Lucia, they're trying to hold on to what they've built in the generations before, even as the possibilities for free people of color narrow. So we really get what I find to be a quite affecting um, story of how individuals and families experience and respond to what are often seen as these abstract imperial changes um, in in their lived daily lives.
1: You devote some attention to slave revolts catalyzed by the American Revolution. Can you speak to this to some degree? Yes, this is
0: something that, again, I wish were better documented. And unfortunately, it's the periods of disruption like revolutionary eras where we have the biggest gaps in the, in the records. Um, but certainly Sandy's revolt, which we just touched on occurs in Tobago during this time. There's also a huge, huge increase in Marinage in Dominica and in Grenada um, in response to these moments of unrest. And I think that in general, the American revolutionary era gives us an opportunity to reflect on how enslaved people seized opportunities created by moments of broader disruption. So in the early years of the American Revolution, there were a lot of privateers coming to the islands and enslaved people might choose to, might be taken by but also might choose to go with these privateers. They may kind of take the ideas that are introduced by the privateers and and carry them back into plantation regimes. They may note that, um, you know, the, the people running the plantations have taken refuge and they take that opportunity to abscond and to join Maroon communities. So while unfortunately we can't totally reconstruct what is happening, we can say that these moments of broader disruption present opportunities that enslaved people are very eager to to seize, to grasp onto.
1: Can you comment to the extent possible on how the events of your book are remembered in contemporary collective memory in the islands you focus on, how they're remembered in St. Vincent, Tobago, Grenada, Dominica and their legacy today?
0: Sure. Um, certainly the, the rebellions that we've covered, so um, the First and Second Carib Wars and feron's rebellions, um, they're a really important part of public memory um, even until the present day. So Chateaulieu and Ferdinand are, are national heroes um, in St. Vincent and Grenada, um, respectively. Balisot, the site of... Kalinago exile after the Seven Years War um, is a super important memorial site for Garifuna people who in the present day are actually asking the Vincentian government to buy that island to kind of turn it into a memorial site um, for their their ancestors who died there. Um, As far as the history in general, in talking to people in the islands, some, Believe that the islands used to be French colonies. In the case of Grenada, that's true; uh, it was a colony until the a French colony until the Seven Years' War. But I've had people in Dominica say, "Oh, we used to be part of France," you know. And I always wondered what to make of that statement. Certainly, the the patois, like the the Creole language that's spoken in the islands, is super heavily French um, inflected throughout the region, but. Someone suggested to me that that was more about the inequalities that exist between um, the surrounding islands of Martinique and Guadeloupe, which are French overseas territories. And so the people who live there are citizens of France and therefore members of the EU and have kind of um, economic and and travel privileges that people in Dominica do not. Um, So I think that, This very early history of kind of the, the era before colonization, before formal um, colonization is not at the forefront of people's minds. Um, And it's something that I hope that people who live in the islands um, will find interesting and perhaps even find um, some of their ancestors in the pages of this book.
1: You have, a, you have a passage that I found quite, quite interesting where you state, like, like other early American borderlands, the Creole archipelago was not a utopia. Far more of its residents lived and died in slavery than found freedom in the islands and warfare punctuated the region throughout the long 18th century. The maritime technology that Colonagos developed to forge an interconnected world was ultimately used to dispossess them of their lands. As settlers appropriated canoa to establish themselves on new shores, while pirogues pirogues allowed a variety of people to traverse the colonial Caribbean, the vessels were also little explored sites of human suffering. The ubiquity of slavery in the Americas meant that much of the labor that enslaved people were forced to perform Much less how these men, women, and children made sense of their world passed without mention. The abolitionist description serves as a much as the abolitionist description serves as a forceful reminder that virtually every colonial artifact from shipping records, diaries, travelogues to buildings, potteries, and foodway bears witness to the presence and experiences of enslaved people all too often silenced in the correspondence of colonial officials. Can can you explain further? Um, Can you describe to those who might not be familiar what pirogues were? And can you comment on what you learned during the course of your research about material culture as is presented in that paragraph?
0: Definitely. Um, So pirogues are Another word for Kanaoa. So basically, they are the vessels that were adopted and adapted by um, settlers and by um, African people from colonagos. So they're typically dugout canoes that can be rowed or can be fitted with a sail. And they vary in size because they're, they come from a single tree that's chopped down and hollowed out. So they might be as small as three, hold as many as as few as three to as many as like 60 or 70 people, but they really become the key way um, that people move in and around the islands. Even in the present day, roads are not always the most practical just because the islands are so mountainous. And so pirogues were how people got from a plantation to a port town and ferried their goods to market um, or you know even carried enslaved people um, from, from slave markets um, to plantations or between islands. And so this passage um, where, I, where I reflect on the fact that, you know, what becomes clear to us, what's most obvious to us when we're trying to reconstruct the history of this time and this place are the experiences of free people, because those are the people who have some opportunity to leave a written record. And so I'm very aware that their experiences are often privileged in the account that I give. Unfortunately, while um, enslaved people in French colonies did often participate in the rights of the Catholic church like baptism and, and marriage, all of those records were systematically destroyed. And so we cannot reconstruct the experiences of enslaved people from those records in the same way that we can the experiences of free people of color. And yet enslaved people represented a majority of the population of these islands before they became colonies. And their proportion of the population only increased after the islands became formal colonies after 1763. And so I think turning to material culture, while that's not um, one of the primary methods I use in the book, but just thinking about how were people getting from place to place? Who was making the pirogues? Who was paddling the pirogues? Who was growing the food that was being taken to the port towns? Who was bringing the utensils that people were using to create these records? In every instance in a society that's built on the exploitation of enslaved people the answer to those questions is going to be enslaved people. And so following historians of the Caribbean who ask us to kind of read along the archival grain and realize that uh, people are present even when they're not being explicitly described or referred to, we can really remind ourselves that at the center of the, the Creole societies that I'm describing, were African and Afro-descended people who were there against their will and who were physically building these societies and who also were uh, building the culture that informed um, and to some extent continues to inform these societies in the present day.
1: Thank you for your time and generosity in this dialogue today. I'm humbled by your erudition and how thorough and conscientious your responses were to everything I asked and everything that we discussed. As I bring this dialogue to a close, um, I would just like to ask you, what are you working on next as your current project? What are you working on now on your, as your subsequent project?
0: Well, thank you so much for the opportunity to to talk through the book with you. I really uh, have so enjoyed this conversation and I appreciate the wonderful and wide ranging questions that you asked. Uh, And I love finishing on this note because my current project grew directly out of that frustration with my inability to really reconstruct the experiences of enslaved people to the extent that I would like. So, Right now with a collaborator in Syracuse University School of Information Studies or iSchool, I'm simultaneously building a searchable database of people who were enslaved on the frontiers of the British Caribbean and also working on a book project that centers their experiences. So the British um, government created these registries of enslaved people in all of their colonies. Um, So the British West Indies, but also South Africa and Ceylon, like just all, all over the world. Um, and for crown colonies, so colonies that were acquired by Great Britain in the early 19th century um, and didn't have um, island assemblies, but were instead kind of governed directly by orders from parliament, the registries are incredibly detailed. So working with this fantastic team of transcribers, we have at present all of the records for Saint Lucia fully transcribed. So this gives us information about the first and last names, ages, heights, place of birth, so like where in West Africa or which Caribbean island uh, people were born, their occupations, so like if they were a field laborer or someone who labored in a household or maybe a skilled worker like a mason, Um, Any distinguishing marks, so like if they had scars or brands or sometimes were like missing a limb, um, and also really crucially, the familial relations of all 16,000 people who were enslaved in St. Lucia in 1815. So it's this enormous resource that will help us to piece together the biographies and the genealogies of people about whom historians continue to know very little and then I hope to use these stories to reflect on the experiences of enslaved people at the frontiers of the British Caribbean more generally. So it's a very ambitious project. Uh, <laughs> I don't expect to have a book on the subject for quite a while, but I hope that it's one that will give us a lot more insight um, into enslaved people um, at the frontiers of the British Empire in the 19th century.
1: That sounds like a phenomenal project that's so morally and ethically important, in addition to being historically and intellectually necessary.
0: Yeah, we're, we're really excited about it and we hope that it will also be um, useful to members of descendant communities who might be able to use it to, to locate their ancestors and reconstruct their genealogies.
1: Amazing, I wish you best of luck with that marvelous project.
0: Thank you so much.
1: Thank you. Um, to our listeners, this has been your host, Ari Barbalat with the New Books in Caribbean Studies podcast. I have been talking today with Tessa Murphy, Assistant Professor of History at Syracuse University. We have been discussing her new book, The Creole Archipelago, Race and Borders in the Colonial Caribbean, published in Philadelphia by University of Pennsylvania Press 2021. Thank you wholeheartedly.
0: Thank you so much.